Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. Today I wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to go over some bullet points that I put together about why I'm pessimistic about the future. And to clarify, I'm certainly not pessimistic about our ultimate future as followers of Christ, but in the short term, and I think I mean something a little bit different than most people when I talk about the short term, I think it's probably looking pretty bad. So this is a guess, ultimately, an educated guess, I think. I hope it's wrong. I think it's uh, probably wrong in certain points, but I feel strongly enough about it to go ahead and lay it all out here. A lot of the things that I'll mention today are things that you have heard before if you've been listening to this podcast. I feel a little bit like Peter Schiff, who says many of the same things in every podcast, just in different ways. And so this will be part of that as well. First, we need to talk about the Bible prophecy angle and where I see us right now. I've talked about this in a previous podcast, but the point is, I don't see any end times happenings yet. Yes, I'm about to say that we're going to go into a global government and there's going to be persecution, but global government and persecution, while they are part of the end times, there's very specific aspects of that global government and persecution. For example, the persecution in the end times is one that begins after a man sits in the temple and declares himself to be God. That's when the persecution in the end times happens. Persecutions before that happen often, we're told to embrace them in the Bible, but the end times persecution is a very specific thing that hasn't happened yet. So you can have persecution, you can have global government and it not be the end times. The global government, for example, in the end times is one that is revolving around a man and a false prophet who calls fire down from heaven and forces people to worship the image of the beast or to be killed by it. I mean, there's very specific things. So I don't see any of that yet. Another thing that I, that I don't see is the Ten Nation Confederacy. This is important because it would be an early precursor. That is to say, um, we would need to see a Ten Nation grouping of nations of some kind in order, because Daniel says that comes before the Antichrist. He sort of uses that to springboard to power. He subdues three of them. They actually exist um, in a 10-nation form all the way to the end, to Armageddon, but um, they do exist before he comes on the scene as well. And so we would need to see major geopolitical shifts. I see the 10-nation thing as a bit of a canary in the coal mine. If we don't see anything like that, and as I say, major geopolitical shifts would have to happen, whether if you think it's the European Union, then, then a whole bunch of nations need to leave the European Union before you get to 10 of them that have the kind of power described there in Daniel. So without seeing anything like that on the horizon, we can say, you know, we're not there yet. Again, this stuff could develop quickly, but it's not there yet. Another thing I don't see is any emphasis on daily sacrifices on the Temple Mount or any um, geopolitical or re religious desire to do that. This idea is incredibly centric to Bible prophecy. Anybody that is a student of Bible prophecy must get that in their head, that Daniel 9, 27, this covenant made with many, I know people think it's a peace agreement, maybe it is to some degree, but what it results in is daily sacrifices on the Temple Mount. And that is something that, yeah, it could develop overnight, but to consider that sacrifices of animals on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, in the current climate with the current understanding of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, it just makes that very, very difficult unless they, for some reason, believe that they were immune or could win an all-out war. So whatever you want to do with the end times, you need to plug that into it. And I'm saying that I don't see any developments on that front right now. I did a podcast recently called Five Reasons I Don't Think We're in the End Times Yet, in which I go through more 
uh, of these if you're interested. Also, I will be talking more about sort of the reasons that a lot of uh, modern Christians think that we're in the end times now in the face of this sort of new world order takeover and why I think that's important for better or for worse. So let's talk about this new world order takeover, and I think it's important to sort of define our terms there. What I mean by that is somewhat ill-defined. I think that Satan, at his core, always tries to take over the world, like pinky in the brain. What are we going to do today? We're going to try to take over the world. And it, the Bible, I think, even sort of validates that with the seven-headed beast, which, which the heads are sort of defined as the attempts to take over the world in history, whether that be... Babylon or Assyria or uh, Rome or all these different things in which he was trying to do just that, but it never really worked. But he, he tries again. And I think that helps to explain why it seems like some of these plans are multi-generational and really smart. But that's something that I always had a, a hard time with very early on to try to, to figure out why Rockefeller or somebody like that would plan for this multi-generational thing down the line. What, what did that benefit him? It didn't seem like legacy was enough to explain it. But it does if you kind of have a supernatural worldview and understand, as I think that I do, that a lot of these people, maybe not all of them, but a, a core group of them are actual true theistic Satanists that do worship Satan, that do rituals in which they are uh, summoning entities that give them plans. I know it's really conspiratorial, etc., but that is my worldview, and I believe that they're trying to take over the world. And I think the Bible tells us that they will be successful at least one more time. So going back to the uh, the dragon and his seven heads, the analogy there, I think the Bible is telling us that the last head, the seventh head, is yet to come, as John tells us. And I think that is the head that is going to be this ten nation thing that we haven't seen yet that will exist sometime in the future. That is the seventh head. It's a world government that he creates. I think that's maybe what's being created right now. But that seventh head, there's this weird phrase that it's also an eighth. And I think that you can follow, and I have done so in previous podcasts, you can follow the, the logic there that it's after that head sort of gets a mortal head wound and resurrects from the dead, which is, I think, a thing that happens is he, in Daniel 11, of course, Revelation 13 talks about the mortal head wound that is uh, healed, which is one of the reasons that the people worship him. I believe that happens just before the midpoint, before he sits in the temple and declares himself to be God. The government that is set up at that moment is different than the government that he took over with the Ten Nation thing. So there are effectively, because that seventh is also an eighth, there's effectively two more, two more world governments. We don't know how long this first one will last with the Ten Nation Confederacy, etc., which I'm sort of guessing that that's what this seventh head is. But, um, but let's just say we don't know how long the seventh head lasts. It could last 100 years, 1,000 years, or five years. I have no idea uh, how long we're in for here, but it looks like that has to be set up first. Moving into the specifics of where we're at with this political situation, and I've described it as uh, two trains on a collision course. And what I'm seeing is that there is a fierceness to this takeover. It almost seems like an overreach. And for that reason, I see a lot of secular people that recognize this takeover having a little bit of a positive take on it, saying things like, you know, look at all the people waking up. You know, they're overreaching. It's going to be their undoing. And I'm not seeing that, though I do see what I mean by the collision course is that you've got on one hand this train speeding down the tracks, just taking over, grabbing power, grabbing, uh, you know, censoring people and all this other stuff. And on the other side, you have this 
people waking up, people becoming completely aware of what's happening in a way that they never have before. So what's going to happen when they collide? And I, you know, maybe I, this is why I'm a little bit pessimistic. I think that the train that is uh, overreaching, be, partly because it has the reins of power, it's got all the bombs and all the guns and all the uh, super techie toys and all the surveillance and all the ability to of the state, I think that's a really hard thing to overcome in these days, and we'll talk about that as we get going. I think Christians tend to be a little bit more pessimistic about it, but partly because they do think it's the end time. So it's sort of a quasi-pessimism in which they're somewhat happy because they think, you know, hey, this is all it, it's all the end times, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about some of the details of the system that's taking over and its strengths and why I think we're in a little bit of a pickle. I saw a tweet early this morning from a guy named Elijah Schaefer that sort of convinced me to go ahead and do this podcast, and it says this, We have fallen to leftist superdominance, not traditional communism, but something new, different, overall totalitarian and evil. Be ready. What's coming is coming and soon. The reason it convinced me to do this is that is sort of the kernel of what I wanted to say here, which is that the thing that's taking over, while it is basically a communist takeover and has a lot of this exact same sort of playbook things that you would do in a cover color revolution type of thing. It is new, it is different, and it's going to be much harder to get out of than other systems have in the same way that China is much harder to break free of because of the technocracy aspect the power aspect that, that Stalin never really had or had the ability to have China does have, and it's going to make it much harder. So we'll, we'll get into that. I think God could change all of this, and it is a consistent prayer of mine to, to, to throw a wrench in the gears of this machine, but I think it's important to say that I think he has done that in the past with the formation of America, which I believe was not in Satan's plans. The whole crossing the Delaware with Washington and that whole thing, which is totally unexpected, and the creation of something built on religious liberty, really, which allowed Christianity in its raw, real form to thrive, I think, for the first time in history, turned us into a nation of evangelists and a great nation, and etc. So now there is a cycle, and that cycle is coming to an end, and it may be that God wants to do it again, or it may be a time in which he has decided to let it go for his own purposes. And I know that his own purposes include hardships for his people, and that's both biblical and historical truth. So I don't presume to think God should or should not do anything, but I do pray, uh, like the persistent uh, widow, I cons consistently pray that he would uh, stop this, but I also am very trusting in him if he decides not to or has decided not to. Some of the tenets of this I'll call New World Party is a very pro-totalitarianism uh, you know, big government to its absolute extreme is considered a good thing. I mean, the bigger the government, the better, which of course will have its ultimate fulfillment in a, a world. Well, why not do it a whole world thing? I mean, the reason to to you have to get rid of America is because you can't have a world government with America being so powerful. So another tenant of this system and really any communist system is that censorship is good. Censorship is a part of the system that is to be celebrated, not, not a bad word. So that is not a good thing when you have a system that loves censorship. And that'll come up later as we get into the Christian aspect of things. Technocracy is a tenant of this new system, and that is not like maybe the old communist systems. As I say, it is a little bit like 
China and its uh, surveillance state and its uh, social credit score. And it's a real psychological thing in addition to the just straight surveillance thing. It just makes it very difficult for little groups to even start, at, you know, revolutionary kind of things. It, it very quickly gets nipped in the bud in the in the technocracy aspect of it. And of course, there are different things. There's AI and there's a whole lot of new things that who knows the ways that that will be used. Another tenant is a lack of justice. This is similar to communism, a lack of justice for their side and severe punishment for their opposition. So we're seeing this and any kind of thing where there is a total prosperity of the wicked. It can be known that they're criminal, that they're treasonous, Literally nothing happens. It's just a news cycle. Oh, this person committed treason, but he's a leftist, so let's give it a couple weeks and everybody will forget it. But on the other side, somebody that just does a minor infraction in the conservative world is thrown in jail, throw away the key. You know, that is a system, uh, a tenant of communism, but also of this system, and it's considered good. I have here my notes about the medical tyranny aspect of the state, but I don't necessarily think that's a tenant of the state. I think it was a tool to get to a place whether that is depopulation is yet to be known. I don't think we know what the vaccine was for. Ultimately, I think it certainly is doing damage in the short term, uh, the long term. I mean, part of me kind of hopes that something is happening that's big enough that we could all say, well, look what they did. You know, let's do something about that. But I don't think even then, I think the propaganda is too good. There's too much money behind it. They'll just say something about it. They'll put out you know, oh, sure, yeah, a lot of people died. Some people did become infertile, but it was all worth it because of so-and-so and so so forth. But the reason I think that the medical tyranny is mostly just a tool for something that I'll talk about later, which is to the division. If half the people got it and half the people didn't, and the propaganda is you hate those that don't, and these are your enemies, then that's really all that needed to be, happen with the vaccine thing, is to make the natural enemies of the state, this new system, to be the enemies of the other half. And to make you afraid of them through pop propaganda, to make them be worthy of killing when it comes time, I think it may be not that reason alone, but it'll just be another reason to, to hate them even more. They're a threat to your life, they're et cetera, et cetera. So I think, especially if they can, um, if, if, if what is happening that I think is happening is happening, which is that more deadly uh, viruses are getting bred within the, the bodies of the vaccinated, which of course will never be admitted. That's an important psychological component to recognize with this. The level of proof you'd have to give somebody that gave a vaccine to themselves and to their kids the, the level of proof that that person needs in order to not feel like just a total, I mean, imagine what they'll do to fight. They'll fight anything. They'll believe anything as long as it's not, wow, I did a really dumb thing and I did that same dumb thing to my children. They'll believe anything that you offer that, them. And so it's going to be basically impossible to convince them of anything, even if it becomes transparently obvious that this was a problem. My point is division is the net result of that. The next bullet point is a little bit of a hard pill to swallow for me, which is that all signs point to them getting what they want. That's why I keep pressing on the, it has to be God at this point, because I can't see any situation in which this gets turned around legally and lawfully. That The justice system is broken. There is no revolution. I wouldn't encourage it even if it was a possibility, but I don't think that that's even a possibility because of the power of the state and the, the huge discrepancy between the power on one side and the other. I just don't even see a path forward to stop it. And that's mostly, I think, based on the fact that we are losing the information war 
really, really badly. And this is tempered with the idea that, yes, a lot of awakening is happening. And it can seem, especially if you're in the bubble of you listen to all the podcasts that you like and you found them and you go to only the news sites that you like and that's where you get your news and and all that stuff, you might get the impression that, wow, people are waking up. Look at all this stuff. This truth is coming out here and truth is coming out there. But you need to recognize that's just in your bubble. And your bubble is really shrinking really fast. Every day, they're just blatantly censoring people, just depersoning every day. It's not getting better. There is nobody fighting that. It is just a matter of time before everybody's off everything. And the only thing that you can get is approved stuff of basically propaganda that is happening there doesn't seem to be any pushback from that and there's no incentives for truth telling where there is incredible financial incentives for lying and making it sound like news so if you are willing to talk about communism and, and talk about new world order tenants and say some woke stuff you can get a job anywhere everybody knows that that's out there looking for a job they know how to climb the ladder and it's woke you be woke and you can get the jobs. Yes, you go broke if you're woke because nobody really wants it, but they don't care that nobody wants it because they know that one day they'll have a monopoly on it. If they can just censor everybody else, then it's just propaganda. Where on the other side, um, there's no financial incentives for the Gateway Pundit or whoever to do good reporting because who's, who's paying? Who are their advertisers there? Yes, they can get donations for a while, but they know that the, the hammer is coming for them. The cancel hammer is going to shut down their thing. Take their they, They're waiting for them to say the wrong thing so they can sue them, put them in jail, call them terrorists. I mean, at this point, you have to be a true believer that is doing something with no financial motivation and willing to go to jail in order to tell people the truth. That's where we're at, or if it's not where we're at right now, it will be very shortly. Don't expect to win the information war. That is basically already lost. The next bullet point is that I think that there is a minimum of 80 years to fix the division in a perfect world, but I don't think we're in a perfect world. So a couple things here. First, I know that 80 years, immediately a lot of people tune out because like every other Christian for the last 2,000 years, you are absolutely convinced that the end times is in your lifetime. I really don't know a single Christian that doesn't believe that to some extent. And again, it's for reasons that are basically bad things are happening to America. Obviously, persecution is coming, but not because of biblical reasons. But so let's just, I know if you're there and you won't believe that it's not happening in your generation, I'm not going to convince you of that today. So let's just do a thought experiment and pretend as if this is going to happen and Jesus isn't going to come back for another 80 years. I've been thinking a little bit about the concept of the fourth turning, which is a generational theory, which is that one generation goes through a crisis, let's say a war, the next generation goes through sort of a good times rebuilding, you know, focus on values, and basically it sort of just keeps going into a, it degradates and ultimately gets back to crisis. And the idea is that that's happened over certainly American history, but also over uh, world history, etc. The division in America, and I would say the world right now, because we tend to think of this as Americans, you know, the, the liberals and the Democrats, but really it's happening all over the world. And I think you could probably say it's sort of the people that uh, follow propaganda and believe the whole thing and probably Christians. I mean, ultimately, I think it does come down to Christians versus non-Christians, but Christian culture and values have somewhat perme permeated enough to be sort of conservative so you could say conservatives and Democrats all across the world, but basically it's Christians, it's propaganda. You know what I'm talking about. And so that division exists all over the world, and it's so intense that 
I think even right now, without any catalyst, we are almost to a point where you could kill somebody on the other side and your side would be like, yeah, that's bad, but, uh, you know, good, good job. You know, it's that kind of sick attitude that exists even right now because it's just so intense. We're on this uh, knife's edge of anything happening could start this snowball effect. And what I mean is that it, whether it's a false flag, and I think that the, the, the propaganda is for us to do it. I think that both sides have shown great restraint up until this point and not beginning the snowball. And I've talked about this before and how it relates to Roman history and that the fall of Rome sort of started when the killing in the streets became a part of a way to sell to, to settle political disputes. And it just sort of, it, it devolved into the fall of Rome uh, after that it took a hundred years. But uh, I think we're kind of in a fast forward world at this point. But my point is that someday that will happen. If, if we don't do it ourselves, they will do some kind of false flag. And when they do the false flag, it will justify, wow, they're so dangerous that they need to be killed or they need to be rounded up and all this other stuff that'll go with it and, and also be in the frenzy of the place that we're already at. But the point is that once killing starts in the streets and the videos start getting out to everybody and you know they're going to give out the, the videos as much as they possibly can, and then it becomes a gang war mentality. Then everybody kind of forgets what happened before or what they're even fighting for because then it becomes you killed us at the battle of so and so and you did this war atrocity there so we're going to kill you on this new battle and we're going to play whatever you know it becomes less about the things that started the war and more about the you hit me so i'm going to hit you back harder and then that generation just never resolves it there's no hope for that generation uh, yes, certainly individuals within the generation, but the generation itself is, is a loss. They'll go to their graves hating the other side because of the gang war. And then I think that even that child, their children are still too infected by those animosities to really have any hope themselves. So that's why I say it takes 80 years to get out of it, because I think it's the grandchildren that see the results of those uh, wars or those divisions and don't have the same animosities. And they're able to make the, 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 that turn around to say, hey, let's focus back on values and forget about these things. And the cycle starts all over in a normal situation. And I should say that if you're thinking, why would they promote chaos? Why would they want blood in the streets and things to go crazy for a while? And the answer is that serves a number of agendas. The first is that they can use that to take guns. They need an actual visual representation of this is what happens when you have guns and this is why we have to take them. And they need sufficient uh, proof of their concept in order to do that. And taking guns is an extremely important concept in this global communism. I'm sure it certainly was an important concept in communism. But also when the dust settles, uh, the the war, which will all, of course, be painted in the most negative possible light for the conservatives, it will be a monument to why conservatives must really be the terrorists of the world. And look at the danger that they have wrought in the past. It will become this uh, this siren song of why it's so important to really re-educate these guys or kill them if necessary. And you think I'm crazy about that, but it really is a world that has seen destruction and it's been painted that in a propaganda way uh, will do anything, especially if normalcy is ever dangled in front of them. Let's talk about killing and communism. As I've said before, I did a podcast called Communism is Killing and just pointed out that all the times that communism exists, it kills millions of people. And that is a feature, not a bug. And it makes sense, of course, because communism by its uh, basic definition is that everybody sort of redistributes everything and equity and all the rest of it, right? Well, 
equity doesn't work unless everybody is on board. You have to have 100% compliance. You can't have a person being like, you know what? I don't think I want to give my money. I think I'll keep my money. You guys do what you want to do. That guy can't exist in communism. So he has to be re-educated in the very best situation, or he has to be eventually killed. And I think that's one of the reasons that Satan just likes communist systems. Even if they don't take over the world, he likes to push communism because it results in a lot of killing and Satan is a murderer uh, in his sort of default position where he just wants the, as I said in that podcast, the scepter, the government ability, the government sanctioned ability to kill is something that he uses and tends to overuse because he gets so zealous about it. So the main point there is that communism results in killing and we shouldn't be surprised if a communist system takes over. You can bet with near 100% accuracy that killing will follow. The next bullet point is the coming persecution of Christians. Now, you could look at this a number of ways. It can be, you know, like we've been looking at just the typical communist system kills Christians. They see it as a national security threat. There is loyalties to someone other than the government. And that's especially true if the government is designed in a way that is specifically um, against Christian values, which I think this new system is probably more so than any previous um, communist system that would take over its main tenants, you know, its wokeness and those kind of things will probably be geared in such a way that it would be overtly anti-Christian. Now, I would say that we all know that uh, they're censoring and kind of targeting Christians and a lot of the wokeness is sort of like backhanded, sort of designed for Christians, but it's not like really out in the open and it really hasn't been to any large degree. You don't see the wokeness woke people right now just saying Christians should all be locked up. You know, it's kind of the underbelly of the situation and you can see where it's all going. But even though I think they're building a system which can target Christians and maybe that's the goal, like, because if you put as the highest and greatest good in your system that, uh, for example, hate speech can be defined as the Bible or, or whatever, um, and the highest and greatest good is sort of tolerance of whatever they want to choose, things that the Bible says are wrong. And if that is their highest and greatest good, then Christians will be their worst enemies. So I think that the reason they haven't been too overt about it, despite, to me, obviously building a system that is meant to point to Christians as the worst possible examples of humanity, and the reason that they're being hold, hold back from you know whatever utopia they're trying to sell, uh, is that they're waiting for the power. As soon as they get the power, then they can actually turn it on overt Christian stuff. And that will include the censorship of Christian material. Um, I think that even in China right now, they're really getting rid of the Bible altogether. Now, this is nothing new in other places, but I think they're, they're going to be able to enshrine in a technocracy sort of woke way. Of course, the, cen the censorship, as I said, is a, a high and great good to them. It will be a part of that um, uh, system. That is to say, censorship of Christian material, as well as the persecution of Christians themselves. The next bullet point is to understand that as bad as all that would be, it's still not necessarily the end times. So it's important for you to, I think, make the mental agreement that certainly we can have persecution without it being the end times, even spectacular numbers of Christians being killed and it's still not being the end times. I mean, I think everybody would agree with that. As I say, the Bible is, tells us to rejoice and to expect persecutions, 
but this particular end times persecution is one that is kicked off when a man declares himself to be God in the temple. Uh, Jesus points to that event uh, singularly in, in the Olivet Discourse and says, when you see the abomination of desolation, then Paul points back to that event and says, you know, when the Thessalonians are thinking that they're in the end times, he's like, haven't you seen that? A man sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God? Well, then you are probably not in the end times. And global government is certainly something that will exist in the end times, but the global government describe the reason we know that there's a global government in the end times is because uh, because the false prophet forces the entire world to worship the image of the beast or be killed by the image of the beast. We know that the buying and selling aspect without receiving the mark on your right hand or forehead, which is the number of the beast, the number 666, without all that stuff, we know that a global government sort of must exist because of that, those aspects. Uh, but that doesn't mean that a global government can't have existed for a thousand, a million, two million years before this this time. I mean, again, I'm okay with the end times, all these things developing at the temple and all everything else in the next year. And I'm the first one that's going to be shouting it from the rooftops. Hey, everybody, it, even if the 10 nation thing starts to come up, I'm going to be the first one to say it. But basically, it's important to recognize that global government and the persecution of Christians are not necessarily the end times. We were given much more specific details, and I believe for good reason. So let's continue with this thought experiment. And the two premises I want you to hold so far is that the new world order system will take over the world and form some kind of new communist system. And the second thing I want you to take into this thought experiment is the premise that it is not the end times as the Bible describes yet. So if those two things happen, what would it look like for the church? Let me start, I think, with the area of the church that I know the best, which is the Bible prophecy world. I think the sort of hyper pre-trib idea that anything bad happening to America, persecution of any kind or communist takeover, all the things that we've been talking about are such, you know, there's a sentiment that I see that it's like, wow, we all know the rapture's right around the corner now. Any day now, everybody, everybody wait, look at all this stuff that's happening. It's not biblical based. It's not pointing out any signs. It's just saying bad things happening to Americans equal rapture any second that group will be extremely disillusioned um, in a time when I think people are going to look to them the most, right? I mean, everybody's going to see this in the world, and especially the Christian world that may not have been interested in Bible prophecy, will be looking to them and they will be have this time period of just absolute freakout mode, eventually to be replaced with disillusionment. Now, that disillusionment in the past when it's happened with, say, Millerism or something like that, when people just had wrong views, right? They, they said that Jesus was going to come back on this date, that date, whatever, with the, the, that kind of situation. It morphed into cults. It morphed into the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists. And I'm sure more came out of Millerism as well when, you know, Jesus didn't show up in whatever it was, 1840 or whatever they said. So that may occur. I don't know. It really sort of depends on what the how quickly they they round up and kill the Christians. And that I think depends on the nature of the false flag. It depends on the alternatives that they provide. You know, is there going to be sort of like a state church that you can sort of bow the knee to the system and do that kind of thing? Um, or will it just be all out war against Christians? And I think sort of that depends on the nature of their uh, thing too. Eventually though, assuming this system lasts a little while, the church will go underground. Let's say this is the group that, uh, you know, either escaped persecution or that refused to bow the knee or whatever, but they will go underground and they will thrive in many, in much the same way that the 
the underground church in China is growing and thriving, but that will coincide with two other problems, which is number one, bad theology. Now, I expect this underground church to be full of passion and power, unlike anything that we in the modern church have ever seen. It'll be growing, it'll be great, it'll be powerful, but because of the censorship, it probably won't be anywhere near the pristine theology that we have today, the access to Lagos Bible software or all the stuff that we just take for granted will exist, but it'll be, you know, presumably illegal and therefore harder to get. The I think that the being able to look something up on Bible Hub and all these kinds of things, and, you know, who knows? Who knows what the nature of that will be, but I will say that probably like the church in China, it doesn't, since it doesn't have access to that, I would, I would, probably a bit like the early church where they were more susceptible to false teachings. You see that a lot in the sort of book of Acts and in Paul's letters, there was a danger of that because they weren't as well grounded. They just didn't have as much material. I think we currently have so much material, are so good at theology, but we have very little passion and very little power. So it's going to be a little bit of a trade-off there. One interesting and unique in history thing that this church, this underground church, this persecuted underground church will have is that they will be a global underground church in a sense. And what I mostly mean by that is that they will all have the same enemy. That is the global system that has conquered them and is persecuting them. So whether you're in India, an underground church or America in an underground church, you'll have the same enemy. Now, what that means, if you're a listener of this program, you know, because you've heard me say it in almost every podcast, that Christianity for the last 2,000 years has always demanded that the end times be in their uh, generation, and they will twist scripture in whatever way they need to, to make the current bad guy of the day be the enemy. And we've done it since Nero, Attila the Hun, uh, Genghis Khan, uh, every pope, you know, over and over and over again, every democratic president, it's, we do it every time. And it's just a it's just a fact of Christianity, and it's okay. But we need to put that into our calculations. And there is absolutely no way that as a global system of underground Christians that they will believe that this system is the Antichrist. And they, like the Reformers, will have a really good reason to have a bad theology. The first is that they really are in a global system. And as we said, the end times will be a global system. So, And it might even be a global system with ten, a 10-nation confederacy. As I sort of expect, if this is the seventh head of the beast that the Antichrist will eventually take over, they'll be able to point to that and say, well, look at that, proof positive. So they're going to have that going for it. Them, they're going to have the fact that they are being killed by them, and they're going to be able to point to scriptures about that. They'll twist scripture to get to the rest of it, to find an Antichrist, to make the other, other scriptures fit. I'm not trying to be hard on them, but, and I say this all the time too, about the reformers who also had a good reason. They were in a quasi-world government with the Catholic Church that was ruled by one guy who had absolute authority that was killing them for a thousand, or almost a thousand years because they wouldn't believe the true gospel in, you know, terrible, awful ways, the Iron Maiden and the different things. It seemed a whole lot like that was the Antichrist. So smart people, John Calvin and the rest of them, just there was no question in the Reformation times that that was the end times. And so we're going to do that again. And again, I'm assuming this is not it. If it is it, then, then they'll be right to do that. But if it isn't it, it's going to be extremely dangerous. And the reason is because of the next bullet point. Enter the Antichrist. First, I should say that I know Christians have always expected the Antichrist to be essentially the embodiment of whatever they personally hate 
or are scared of or think is the most evil system in their day. In other words, the average Christian thinks that the Antichrist will come on the scene as this atheist, homosexual, liberal, Muslim space alien who's into the occult with literal devil horns and a pitchfork. And as such, there's not a single Christian that I know of that has even given a second thought to being deceived by the Antichrist. They'll say, well, how, how am I going to get deceived by a, you know, a Muslim saying to become a Muslim? I'm not going to do that. They, they have such wild ideas about what the Antichrist will be that they're not even the least bit scared of a deception from him. And that's significant to me because my reading of the Olivet Discourse is that of uh, Jesus really being serious about not being led astray by a person intending to look like a savior to Christians, or at least to Jews. So let's, let's read it this way. And Jesus said to them, this is the first thing he says when the disciples ask him the question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered and says to them, first thing, see that no one leads you astray. Four, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So he's saying this to Christians. He's saying they're going to come and say, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray, but I don't want you to be led astray. Just that idea means that it's for us. We need to be worried about it, but let's just skip down here to verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. A couple interesting things here. He's saying, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. So that's a, a, a declaration of I am the Messiah. That, there's no ambiguity there. He's telling people that in the last days, the end of the age, they will be people saying, I am the Christ, but he doesn't want us to believe it. He's already told people that some will be led astray by it. Another thing I want to point out here is that he's saying that, you know, his argument about how you will know that it's not him is because they're saying, go out there in the desert or go out there in the, in the inner rooms to, to see the return of this Christ. And he's saying, you won't miss my return because it will be like lightning shining from the east to the west. It is unmistakable. They're, they're doing this sort of dark, hidden thing. That's not how I'm going to return. I'm going to return with power and great glory, which he's about to describe in, starting in verse 29. I also think it's interesting that he says that they tried to deceive them, tried to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And I think that a lot of people look at that and they say, well, if it's not possible to deceive the elect, what am I even worried about? But look at that from the other direction. He's describing who, they're who this deception is targeting. That is to say, they are trying at to deceive the elect, but it is not possible. But that doesn't mean that there still isn't the falling away, the many that will fall away uh, that he described earlier, the apostasy as uh, uh, Second, uh, Second Thessalonians describes it. You can have a, an apostasy of Christians going, falling for this lie that the Christ has returned in his name, but they are not elect. And you can look at that a lot of different ways. There's a Calvinist way to look at that, and there's a not-so-Calvinist way to look at that. But all I know is that Jesus warned us that the persecution in combination with a false Christ will lead to many falling away. Okay, so back to our timeline. So I could see this wor world government being overtly, obviously evil, especially if there's this sort of woke tinge to it. You know, it's going to be so 
obviously satanic and we're going to already have the theology that this is the end times or whatever. So if we can truly as a church, as an underground church, I may probably not be here or whatever, but the point is, is that if they can believe that that's the antichrist, if a guy comes on the scene that defeats it, if he defeats this system, which I think the antichrist clearly and most um, notably is a man of war, Right? That's what Daniel 11, 40 through 45 describes, which I think is the same thing of his subduing the three, uh, the 10 nation confederacy, which he takes over. And he does so in obviously an overtly religious way. So it's kind of contra to this sort of atheistic system that I think will be encouraged to believe is the Antichrist. In other words, you've got a guy talking about religion and talking about the temple and trying to save the Jews and doing it and unable to be defeated. And I think I, I go on in my books, False Christ and different things like that. I describe, you know, that he's essentially, in my view, trying to uh, look like they were doing all the things that Jesus will do eventually, but did not do in his first coming, like the millennial kingdom, uh, making Jerusalem the capital city of the world, pilgrimage system to the temple, all the things that you know, the Messiah is supposed to do in the, what we call the millennium, the Antichrist will do to try to look like he is the Christ. Of course, the false prophet is Elijah or pretending to be Elijah, which I think is an interesting dynamic because one of the two witnesses will prob probably be Elijah. So, and so you've got them both essentially calling fire down from heaven, sort of a dueling Elijah situation, which I think would be absolutely fascinating. But um, so this solves a little bit of a problem that I, I think people have had with the biblical version of the end times. So when I describe what the Bible seems to describe about the end times, sitting in the temple, people, the Antichrist forcing the world to, the world, atheists included, to go to a temple in Jerusalem and worship the image of the beast with gold, silver, and precious stones and, and incense and the rest of it. People don't like that because they're like, I think I'd rather have aliens or something that I can sort of sink my teeth into. I don't see any scenario in which the world, atheists included, are going to march to Jerusalem and to give, uh, give oblation to a Jewish God. That's just not going to happen, Chris. I don't care what the Bible says, basically. I would say this kind of makes that a possibility because if we really get truly taken over by this obviously overtly secular evil woke and it just becomes so decadent and awful no matter how many years they're allowed to have complete control it'll be transparent to everybody the killing and the decadence and the evil and so if you have this man who has supernatural ability to completely make fools of them and to defeat them entirely then i think the world and remember, wokeism as a thing will be long dead at this point. It may exist as sort of like the rallying cry of the sort of leaders of the government who use it for their policies, but there won't be anybody left that actually likes the government. It'll it'll be all people who just wanted to end the decadence, the the evil, the killing, the the censorship, the just awfulness will be everybody in the world will be fed up with this thing and probably uh, understand it to be the evil that it is. So if a guy comes on the scene, has the power to defeat it, you know, the enemy of my enemy is your friend kind of situation. And, and if he, if he can be, seems to be a part of this sort of, you know, prophecy accepted by the Jews as their Messiah, you know, that's the key thing, the acceptance of the, uh, him as the Messiah by the Jews, because Mr. Babylon tells us that the reason the rest of the world sort of worships him as well is because of the nature of her fornication she, uh, as high priest. She has a name written on her forehead that says, you know, Mystery Babylon, uh, Mother of Harlots. Well, high priests have on their 
forehead, the same band that says uh, a holiness to the Lord. But my point is, she's being dressed up in the same colors of a high priest. It says that the world is made drunk by the fierceness of her fornication. The world is made intoxicated because she so fervently worships this beast as her, quote, husband and her uh, uh, king that the world is drawn into that. And I think that that is the scenario that the, you can have a world that's fed up and has been through a secular uh, washing machine and, you know, just hates it and are ready for this prophecy and this thing. And of course, it ties into the bad theology thing, because I think that Satan has always tried to keep the Bible down for this moment. He doesn't need people to be too good at the Bible when he shows up on the scene because he is going to pretend like he's the Messiah. He's going to pretend like he is fulfilling all the prophecies in the Bible that Jesus never did. That is to say, make Jerusalem the capital city of the world, uh, pilgrimage system to Jerusalem, all the things that we know will happen in the millennium, Isaiah 65, all the rest of it, Ezekiel 40 through 48 and all that stuff. Well, he's going to try to do that. But the problem is he's not God and he can't quite do it perfectly as if he was God. So it leaves him vulnerable to somebody who has better theology. And I think the Bible actually points this out in certain ways. For example, in Daniel 11, 40 through 45. For example, in this is the wars of the Antichrist, I think on the Antichrist's rise to power. It says he defeats the king of the north and the king of the south, which is Egypt and Assyria. And I think that he's trying to mimic Isaiah 11. So these same nations are mentioned in Isaiah 11 as a part of the real Messiah, Jesus, during the day of the Lord and sort of conquering and reclaiming the kingdom, reclaiming um, the, the Israel that was uh, given to Abraham, that is to say greater Israel, which would include from Egypt to Assyria, as the saying goes. Um, he's conquering that whole area. He's conquering Jordan. He's conquering uh, Ammon and, and, and Edom and Gaza and all that stuff. Well, it doesn't quite work out in the Antichrist version of that. And the Bible says that um, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon escape from his hands. It's an interesting line because it it presumes that you know that the Antichrist was trying to get them, but they escaped from his hands. It's really the only black mark on that whole victory of the Antichrist, a series of military victories. After that, he goes on to have more victories in the East or whatever, but it's a little bit of a black mark, and it mentions the Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And it's one of those things that you could say, hey, um, I know you're saying the Messiah and Isaiah 11 and all that, but you didn't get Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And I'm just wondering, does that mean you're not the Messiah or whatever? It's just a little things like that. I think the image of the beast is a, is a lot like that. In the real uh, millennium, Jesus will sit in the temple and be, and I presume will really be able to be in the temple and maybe be other places. I don't know. I mean, he's God. He can do what he wants, but he, it seems like he really is going to be in the temple. The Antichrist, I don't think, has the time or the inclination to sit in the temple for his three and a half years. He knows his time is short. I presume he's got other things going on. So he sets up the image. I think it's probably a Satan thing too. So Satan can actually receive the worship. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the image of the beast is part of that. In fact, something we mentioned earlier, I think is part of it. The idea that, you know, go don't go out in the uh, desert or in the inner rooms. That's not how I'm going to return. Jesus says, he says, when my return is going to be like very, very noticeable, you know, lightning and all that stuff. And again, the Antichrist isn't going to have that kind of situation. He's not going to show up like that and turn the sun, moon, and stars dark. And and I mean, I guess there probably is a fake version of that, but it probably would obviously be fake and certainly not global. My point is he can't do all those things. So he is, he's through a glass darkly doing this Messiah trick, and he needs people not to be too up on the Bible in order to 
call his bluff. But it's not just things like that. I mean, the Bible, the Bible prophecy in general was like Jesus said there in Matthew 24, see, I have told you beforehand. And that's just not a good thing for Satan and the Antichrist system. They would have preferred that the Bible not tell us beforehand what he's going to do. He would, but so we know the playbook, we know the, 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 the outline of how this is going to go, and that's not what he would prefer. So his next move is to try to minimize, to try to uh, censor, to try to get this from out people. And I think you need generations to, to do that. You need one, the generation, and think about that. How many generations does it really take to get good theology out of the system? I'm thinking maybe one, maybe two, but if you can do the censoring and you can take my generation out, maybe the kids that we taught that generation to, then you're pretty much starting clean slate. Nobody knows what's going on with regard to Bible prophecy or anything else. Some people in the underground church will. That's one of the reasons we need to try to preserve this information. But, uh, you know, you get my point. So what are some takeaways? What are some action items? What can we do about any of this? And I know it's really dire and just take some solace in that I know most of this is probably wrong. Uh, there's no way that I could know the future. And this is just a best guess based on... Um, you know, my understanding of the world, which is very prone to error, by the way, because God's ways are way, way higher than anything I could even think of. And everything that I'm thinking of is based on man stuff and all kinds of wrong presuppositions. So please take it with a grain of salt. My only goal is that, uh, you know, to, to have some nuggets of truth in here that can be of benefit to somebody down the road. But what does it mean? What can we do? I think couple answers to that. The first thing, be prepared for short-term chaos. It does appear to me, this is purely secular reasoning here, that they are trying to get chaos to happen and that they don't really care how, they don't seem to have any short-term plan. They just really want it to happen and they don't, I feel like, care how much it burns or how hot it burns. Like they want it to just happen and burn because they know that whenever they want to, they can come in and use their state power to clean up the streets and make every and prove how bad everybody was. And now we got to go into a global system. So they don't care about the short-term chaos, but we should care about the short-term chaos because we got to live through it and deal with it. So yeah, I mean, what does that mean? I think it means obviously having food, that kind of stuff, have a escape plan to the country. If you can, if you live in the city, you know, start thinking about what it would be look like to, to get some, uh, plywood in your apartment to plywood up the, the bolt, the windows there, or to put a nice big lock on your door to have some kind of barricade there. I think anybody in the survivalist community will tell you the dangerous part is that first little bit of chaos. That's the section that you just need to have a plan for. Everything after that, you can probably deal with later on. Another thing I would recommend is community, church community to be specific. And, you know, if you don't go to church now, you need to consider going and you really should try to get involved as well. Ideally, it's something that you're already interested in and know that you can be a faithful servant in for a long time and not be fickle or uh, wishy-washy about. And in doing so, you're going to find that God actually, you know, gives you friends. He shows people that are like-minded in some way or another in that situation. And to start to grow a community where they know your name, you're know their name and you're in a position in the situation where you can suggest things like, hey, you know what, we could turn that backyard of the church into a garden and, you know, whatever. Because I think in the end, the churches, a good church won't back down in any of this and they're going to survive a long time because of that community. Because you can't do anything on your own with this. If there is any hope down the road, it's not going to be on your own. You don't have enough skills to 
raise all the food that you're going to need. You're going to need a lot of people that have a lot of skills that you don't need and that are completely on board with basically everything that you believe in anyway uh, because of the church situation. So it's, it's churches are going to be extremely important if any of the things that I just talked about uh, occur. Obviously, good churches. The final and most important thing, though, is to have a radical shift in your outlook from everything else that you think is important to Jesus being the most important, uh, the, his gift of eternal life being understood as the value that it is, the joy in God uh, being the treasure of your heart that you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit because you don't want to lose that joy that empowers so much uh, through faith. It's that joy, it's that, it's that Christian life, basically, the joy of the Christian life that you'll, you're going to need in a situation like this. You're going to need that if you get uh, sent to the concentration camps. That's when the power of God will be most evident and you'll be able to do the most good. You're going to need it if you're going to the gallows or heaven forbid your children have to go to the gallows. You're going to need transcendent joy. It's the only solution. It's the only thing that I can offer you is what, what do you do? What can we do? Can I build barns and, and hopefully uh, uh, take it easy? No, that's not how this works. No matter how much rice you have, the only thing that of, is of any value is that you're able to do what Jesus says when, you know, they say they're, you know, when you're going to kill you for his sake is jump for joy for your great is your reward in heaven. Jumping for joy is where you need to be. What, coming to you and saying, hey, they're going to kill you for your faith. Jump for joy. That's the kind of mindset that you have to get to. Well, how do you get to that? Well, first of all, you have to abide in the vine. I think it's all about prayer mostly. It's all about a desire. It certainly is about not grieving the Holy Spirit with vices and continued big sins that are, that are destroying you, opening doors for Satan, uh, especially if you have truly been saved and you've been delivered from the power of sin and death. And Jesus' Jesus's promise to you is resist the devil and he will flee from you. One th quick thing about vices, just because everybody has them, right? Um, so one thing I always thought about vices was that it was all about your resolve, that resolve was important. And I absolutely think it is, especially from the secular point of view, but also from the religious point of view. So what I mean by resolve is if somebody came, went to a doctor and the doctor said, look, if you take one more drink of alcohol, I have this on good authority. I'm looking at your chart. One more drink of alcohol, you will drop dead that instant. And you were totally serious. and You totally believed him. And you're like, okay, well, that's it. I'm not going to take one more drink of alcohol. You would have perfect resolve. No matter what happened in your life, you would never take another drink of alcohol because you knew that you would drop dead. You would never have a problem with alcohol again. You would have perfect resolve. And there is a version of that that you can do, especially if you hit rock bottom and you realize, wow, that's absolutely it. There's no way I'm ever going to do it again. I'm not going to go back to that. That kind of resolve is the kind of resolve that people actually end up quitting drinking. They don't need AA. They don't need anything because they had resolve because they had a reason. And But everybody else that doesn't have that great of reasons, well, you know, it's, it's more difficult. Uh, so it's harder to find that resolve. But one of the things I've realized as I go to older is that it's not about resolve. And part, part of the reason that it's not is because it's very glorifying to you and it's not long-term safe. And one thing that is, I think, is um, trust in God for his power. When you're weak, he's strong. And that functionally means that you go to him daily in prayer if you if you one way or the other and ask him for that help, his power to 
keep you from sinning because you don't want to sin because you want to keep growing in that joy. You want to keep growing in that resolve because the more you can bank of that joy in the Lord, the more it empowers everything else, the more that you want to do all the good things and the more that you're on that straight and narrow way and you're fighting the good fight and running the good race and all the rest of it. And you, cause you can picture what it is that that's the life that you want. You already, no one has to tell you all the destruction and the open doors and all the problems that happen. And that, that way lies death with the, with the ways that your flesh wants to go. But you have been, uh, uh, you've been given the key out of that, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's, that's a promise from God that you can bank, but it does require you to do your thing. Resist. Yeah, it's sort of a diminishing thing. Three days, hard to resist, really hard. First three days, three weeks, a little bit hard. Three months, you're almost done. Three years, you're out of the woods. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you, and continually go to God. Exchange whatever you were doing with walks where you can pray to God, ask him for the strength that you need that day, and get done with his vice stuff. Just throw it away, because... The end game is here, everybody. So let's go. And even if it's not, that's still a good place to be. But my point is, if you are the person that has his joy in God, you're the kind of person that Jesus says, you know, when they say they're going to kill you, you jump for joy because great is your reward in heaven. The ability to jump for joy when they tell you they're about to kill you is where you need to be. And the only way to do that is to become the Christian that you know that you can so that yes, there's sorrow. Yes, there's tears. Yes, there's all this other stuff. But because you're not focused on this world and you don't care that elections don't work and you don't care that there is no justice and that you understand that this is all part of God's plan because you can trust that it is. That's one of the things that whether the wicked are prospering or not, whether uh, the, the country is falling apart or not, you know that God is really, really smart and that nothing, not a thing happens without his say-so. And that if a thing is happening, you know that it is part of his plan and that you can just do the thing that's part of your plan, which is not to worry about the elections. Or I mean, obviously, you might be called to, to worry about that. And I think a lot of good Christians are doing good things with the elections nowadays. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying check out from all that stuff. I'm just saying that that'll eat you alive if you start to worry about injustice and you start to worry about the prosperity of the wicked because that's not a unique thing. Just think of being in Stalin's Russia or Mao's whatever, all the injustice, all the stuff, but then you still had the people that were praying. You still had the people that God was working through during all that time. That's just, you can't be hung up on that stuff. You can't even be hung up on the fact that they're going to kill you and that is the beauty of Christianity is that they can't take that away from you if you have the one thing that you need, which is Jesus and more of him. So that's the goal. If you take nothing else from anything that I said here today, uh, that'll fix all your problems. Uh, uh, so anyway, kind of a side note, if you made it all the way through this, I do think it's important for us to begin to make an arc of material. That is to say, audio and video material. I have some people that I think could help with that on the sort of technical preserving side but I'm not sure what it looks like from the gathering of the information side or how do we find all the information or what do we do with it. Uh, go ahead and send me an email if you want to. My email is chriswhite79 at protonmail.com. That is chriswhite79 at protonmail.com if you've got any thoughts about that or anything else. I've got part five of the Gog Magog study almost researched and it should be out maybe this week, maybe next week, not quite sure. So stay tuned for that as well. Go to the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can read all my books for free at BibleProphecyText.com. 
and we will see you next time. Bye.